You're listening to Raising Anchor, a Rhode Island FC podcast. We're glad you're here. Hello and welcome to Raising Anchor, your podcast and source for all things Rhode Island FC. I'm your host, Matt Entrican, and I am running solo today as we have a very special episode for listeners. Recently, I had the honor of sitting down to interview Rhode Island FC President Brett Louie, where he shared insight on both the club and the league as RIFC prepares for its 2024 start. We had the opportunity to meet with the front office at their RIFC headquarters in downtown Pawtucket, where we got to meet not only President Brett, but other members of the executive staff within the front office, some of the coaching members, and the hardworking individuals in the service and ticket account executive areas. I could go on and on about the quality and caliber of the man making the big decisions for the organization, but if I'm being honest, he does a much better job of telling that story in his own words. He was gracious with his time and provided an in-depth look into the inner machinations of what it takes to run this club and I think you'll enjoy what he has to say. So sit back and enjoy Raising Anchor's first exclusive interview with President Louie. I'm here with Brett Louie, president of Rhode Island FC. How are you doing today, Brett? Doing well, Matt. Appreciate you having me. How about yourself? Uh, I'm, I'm doing fantastic. I have been waiting for this interview. I know that the listeners are also waiting to, to hear what you have to say, knowing that this is a sit down where we get to really learn and, and kind of unpack some of the things that are going on with the club. Uh, I'm just looking forward to a great conversation. Yeah, likewise. Excited to be here. So, you know, on that note, how are you uh, enjoying Rhode Island so far? You've been here for how many months? Uh, coming up on, on six here. We, we got here in March. So yeah, we've, we've really enjoyed it. It's been a good transition personally and, and professionally. Had our, had our first child uh, a little over a, a year ago. So uh, it's been a nice change of a pace. We've been in Tampa for uh, my wife longer than, than me because she uh, got her doctorate of physical therapy at, at USF, which is kind of what brought us, us down there uh, in the first place. But uh, it's, been, it's been nice to to come here, it's got a much more uh, neighborhood feel. I I, I think uh, that we're both small town Midwesterners, so that that kind of suits us. Uh, I jokingly tell people, and it's really not a joke at at this point, that we probably met more people in six months in Rhode Island than than we did in ten years in in Tampa. That you kind of maintain relationships, and and even if it's a, a brief social interactions with that, that's been been refreshing for us. We've we've enjoyed that, so we've we've really enjoyed being here in the ocean state and uh, summer in Rhode Island, it definitely beats summer in Florida, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, it's funny, most Rhode Islanders will complain about two things, the weather and potholes. Uh, how have those <laughs> impacted you moving from Tampa? Uh, more potholes, so that, that, that part is, is accurate, uh, although much, much improved uh, on our, our route to and from the office on, uh, on six, but uh, no, the, the weather's been, been good. I mean, look, we, you can set your clock by when it rains in Florida anyway, so I know it's been a, a damp summer by, by comparison up here at least uh, so we're told but uh, it's all relative in life and all all subjective so uh, relative to florida summers uh, it's still dry so by uh, comparison you're responsible for bringing the wet weather yeah it's completely my fault so <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that'll uh, i'm sure there'll be be other things that uh, that we can point the the finger on but weather i'll take all day <laughs> uh what is the most rhode island thing you've done so far or have you been told that you need to go do uh, that's a good. That's a good question. We uh, so we, we did 
uh, first Mother's Day down in Newport, which is beautiful. Uh, so just uh, the chance to see Rhode Island at kind of the the cusp of, of summer, let, let's say at the at the end of May there was was beautiful. Yeah, just uh, you know everyone uh, I think actually downplayed the beaches when when we got here. I think knowing that we came from Florida, like oh well they're not Florida, and they are they are certainly different, but uh, different doesn't necessarily. Uh, me not as good. It, it's it's gorgeous the coastline along here and uh, just the vistas and vantage points and and the Rhode Island sunsets are everything that everyone says they are. So it's been been yeah a nice change of pace. We've enjoyed our time here so far. That's fantastic. So switching gears into the soccer because you know people want to hear more about what's going on with the soccer product. Uh, I, I did some exhaustive research on you uh, getting prepared for this and uh, it seems like. Soccer has just been a part of your DNA since you know you were you were a kid. Uh, you played as a as a kid all the way up to your time at Wesleyan, uh, where you were a defensive midfielder. First question I kind of want to be uh, interested in, in learning more about is: Did you ever have any intention of playing professionally after your collegiate time? Uh, you know, I I was so banged up in in college. It was one of those things where where I played when I was fit and healthy, but those those times became increasingly fewer and further between as, as my career uh, went on. I, I joke that I think everybody has a finite amount of toughness that they're afforded in in their life, and I used mine up by by my early twenties. So uh, no, it was one of those things that that I think is I was going into even going into the the collegiate base and taking my uh, uh, going towards more of the division three route as opposed to division two division one I always knew that uh, my academic pursuits were going to be more important than than my athletic ones I, I'd come to, to terms with that uh, and the injury bug it, it started to get me in high school a, a little bit uh, as well so I, I knew that that was was something that playing professionally and the ecosystem just was so much different uh, then than than it is now. So, you know, as I was coming up, club soccer, frankly, was just starting to become more and more uh, popularized and, and people are starting to become more and more familiar with it. And, and where I'm from in, in Illinois, there was really one club and, and uh, with all due respect to, to that group, if you wanted you know, proper club football, you were pretty much going to St. Louis or Chicago, which was two and a half or three hours either direction of, of where I was uh, or Indianapolis, which is another you know two and a half, three hours uh, away. So um, it, it was one of those things is the, the ecosystem is so different uh, at that point. Uh, USL Championship, which which we'll play in starting next year in League One and this entire ecosystem that exists now uh, existed in, in a very different form or fashion. Uh, there was just kind of one league at, at that point. There was some semi-pro into pro. I think at that point it was probably the uh, USISL or the A-League or, or some iteration of, of what eventually became what, what we'd refer to as the, the modern era, quote-unquote, of, of USL uh, as it exists here over the last 10 to, to 15 years. So it's just uh, the opportunities were, were far fewer, and even at, at that point, uh, people were wondering if MLS was, was still going to be in existence when, when I was playing as I, as I date myself a little bit, but, uh, no, it's just a very different ecosystem, but I, I came to terms with it, that, uh, that I was always going to use my head, but probably not on the soccer pitch anyway. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't help when you're a defensive midfielder, right? It, it does that's not. That's also one of the most beat up roles you could have on a pitch. It, it, it does not. Uh, my, my role is essentially to, uh, win the ball back and, and give it to our Brazilian number 10 as quickly as humanly possible, uh, without messing up in between. So to the degree that I was able to, to do that, uh, mission accomplished. Sounds like the strategy of a lot of MLS clubs today anyway, so <laughs> spot on. 
Um, so, you know, from there, you know, I know that you went and pursued a master's in sports management, but I think what's important to understand is when did you first get exposed to the USL? It's a good question. So I was at least aware tangentially anyway of, of the USL. So my, because my uh, collegiate coach actually coached for the Pittsburgh River Hounds as an assistant uh, prior to, to coaching at Illinois Wesleyan. So I was at least aware of of USL in that context that he had coached professionally at, at that time. I don't know that I was necessarily aware of the fact that it was within the USL ecosystem, but hindsight being kind of 2020, you kind of connect the dots and, you know, one of the recruiting tools that that was useful for him certainly was that he was a former professional coach and kind of understood that that process process and pathway, et cetera. So I was at least aware of it. Then I, I was certainly aware of uh, Super Y League, which prior to the Development Academy that the U.S. soccer ran for a period of time, was kind of the preeminent uh, youth league in, in the country outside of the state association. So I was aware of it in, in that context. Again, I didn't necessarily associate that it was was usl and we you know we had guys uh that played in in the pdl uh at the time pdl which is now league two in the usl ecosystem uh in college and and before um in kind of later high school ages they were kind of cycling out of their their youth clubs and kind of getting into that quasi-adult space let's let's call it um just needing to stay fit in the the summer times you have lots of guys that go and play in in pdl in the in the off season now league two. So I was at least uh, aware of it. Although if you'd asked me at the time, what ecosystem that existed in, I wouldn't have told you USL. So sports management as a pursuit came independent of, of the USL for you. It did. So uh, I did not have the most linear career pathway to, to where I've, uh, I've landed now at, at this point. So if, if you'll indulge me, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll skip the stones all the way to, to where I am now. But uh, essentially, I, I went to undergrad at Illinois Wesleyan and was an English writing major, uh, believe it or not. So, uh, and I originally did that with the intent of being a sports writer. Uh, I actually had a sports column um, in uh, in the Illinois Wesleyan student newspaper for uh, for a period of time. So, if anyone wants to comb through the the catacombs and and who knows what I was talking about it at that point or opining about um, in. Uh, in my, my sports column there, that was the original aspiration as I um, kind of met some some different folks. I always knew I wanted to be involved in sport in some form or, or fashion, so that's been unchanged. The the actual facet of, of sport that I uh, wanted to, to be involved in has kind of evolved over time. And then at that point, um, you know, I knew uh, a fair number of folks that were considering law school at, at the time. Um, so I thought about potentially being a sport agent after I graduated from Wesleyan, went to, to Valparaiso for one L year, decided that was not the, the fit that I was, I was looking for, and then took a little bit of time for, for some self-reflection. Uh, our digital media staff will probably find this almost impossible, but my first foray into pro sports was doing social media for uh, a group called The Futures Tour, which was kind of like a, a minor league system of sorts for the LPGA. Uh, at the time, and they uh, they held the championships in uh, my hometown of Decatur, Illinois, uh, on an annual basis there for for a period of time. And uh, my father's was on the park district there, was the president of the park board for uh, a period of time. So as I was trying to to sort through life and and what I what I wanted to do, uh, he kind of helped get me a, a foot in the door there. And and he happened to be a sport management professor, still is a sport management professor 
Uh, today was a very successful collegiate track coach for, for 30 years and then uh, went more the, uh, the professorial uh, route afterwards and was the department chair for exercise science and sport management. So that was kind of my first introduction into to sport management was watching him kind of make that transition. And it, it seems something that was very interesting to, to me. Um, and as they say, it, it's all about who you know. So as I was trying to get back into, into sports, I was looking for grad programs where I could also work in the athletic department at the, at the same time. Uh, I'd done an externship in enforcement with the NCAA when I was in undergrad. Um, and the person who I'd done the, the externship with there knew the head of compliance at, at Florida State. They worked together at, uh, at the NCAA together. So uh, through, through that connection, I, I ended up being a compliance coordinator uh, at, at Florida State during kind of the, uh, their touch wood. They're, they're back now on the, the college football scene, but during the Jimbo Fisher, Jameis Winston era, I worked for the compliance department in, in athletics at, at FSU, which was obviously a very fun time to to be there. So that kind of got me back into the door. The whole time I was, I kind of had a foot in the, the coaching space. Um, it's kind of a, a secondary gig. And so I, I never got out of, of the soccer space entirely, but you know, eventually that landed me a, a role in, in operations with the Development Academy at, at U.S. Soccer. And um, and then is, uh, as my wife was finishing up school, us both being from Illinois, we started to play the who goes where game. Um, uh, so she looked up a, a bit in Chicago. I was looking down in, in Tampa and it, it just so happened a position in the youth development space opened up at USL. Um, and so left the Federation in Chicago to, to go down there and, and the rest is history, as they say. That's, uh, that's quite the, the journey. Um, I don't think a lot of people could say that they've had that kind of I don't know if volatility is the right word, but uh, you know, you usually hear the people in positions like yourself where they were groomed or they had they always knew exactly where they wanted to be from kind of day one in, in some capacity. So that's quite the uh, that's quite the the journey there. Um, so in in the sense of the USL, I think it's really important that we we talk a little about that because some listeners are already aware that you had a very prominent role to play in the league operations. Uh, I believe you were, was it second in command as an executive vice president of operations for the league? Um, kind of one of the questions that everyone's asking internally is, is like, wow, you, you were at, at that echelon. What was the decision to enter into a club specific role when you were already, you know, second from the top on the totem pole for the entire league? Yeah, I think a lot of things went into to that decision, both personally and, and professionally. Uh, you know, I'd reached a, a point in USL where, look, there's there's always more things to accomplish. There's always additional challenges and, and opportunities. But when I first arrived at, at USL, there was a single professional division. We operated, I think, 11 different properties at, at that time. And, and we were, frankly, a, a little bit of a jack-of-all-trades, master of, of none. And there was a, a big focus as I kind of shifted from the development side to the professional side and, and the league still had the, the direct league to league partnership with MLS where they started to put in the, the MLS two teams. And literally overnight, we went from 12 professional teams to 24. And so they were just kind of looking around for people that had operations experience and, and background. And, and I was fortunate enough to at least know enough to be dangerous and, and be given an opportunity uh, there to kind of grow as the ecosystem kind of kind of grew. I kind of grew along with it and and gained additional responsibilities in different roles and departments over the course of time. But you know it was one of those things where watching it grow from 
a single professional entity at the time, which was USL Pro, which then became USL, which then moved from Division Three to Division Two, then became the championship as League One formed back in Division Three with the championship occupying the, the Division Two space and uh, kind of the the ongoing volatility in in kind of the the second and third division space with you know NASL still existing at the at the time and again the relationship between USL and MLS being kind of this ever evolving entity where there is a sense of of stability that started to arrive after all that volatility um, to to coin your term uh, previously or to use your term previously uh, that just started to feel more stabilized um, and and you know, I wouldn't describe it as necessarily comfortable per se, but things started to become a little groundhog day for for lack of a better term. Again, there's always more things to accomplish. There's always these incremental improvements, but watching it grow from 12 teams to 36 that exist in the, the ecosystem now will be even more when, when we join, obviously, uh, going into to next year to kind of see that stabilize out. It just kind of felt like the, the right time to to kind of pivot to a, a different direction. And I got a taste when I was at Florida State for having a dog in the hunt, so to speak. I miss that a little bit. At the league office, you're, you're constantly Switzerland. Uh, you, you're making decisions that impact such a vast ecosystem. And by the time I, I left, I oversaw operations from everything all the way down to Super Y, all the way up to the championship. So to, uh, to get to oversee that vast of an ecosystem and try to consistently make decisions that are the best holistic decision knowing that you're never going to make uh, everyone happy in the the process to to kind of get some uh, some intentional tunnel vision for lack of a better term here on the the club side plus you know being kind of able to to advocate for a specific group as opposed to trying to make these universal and holistic decisions was something that that really appealed to me and the the timing just felt right like i said within the ecosystem i, I could see the growth and trajectory, and frankly, just the the different elements of this project made it specifically very appealing uh, to me for a, a variety of different reasons. But you know, I, I had a huge belief, even from uh, back in eighteen nineteen, when there started to be rumblings that the professional soccer was going to come here to Rhode Island. I was interested in it all the way back then because I felt like it had very similar ingredients to uh, other um, other locations that franchises had a lot of of success. You, know, you look at the Louisville cities, the New Mexico Uniteds, the San Antonio FCs, uh, you know, Brett's involvement in in Phoenix Rising out out in Phoenix. This looked and felt very similar. Had a lot of key foundational elements that I felt either from a community perspective, um, you know, the the opportunity to really kind of control a, a market uh, a marketplace in terms of the eyes and attention of, of people in the pro sports space, and, and obviously the the stadium opportunity coming in the future is just something that felt uh, too good to pass up and that I've been interested in for, for a long time. So I, I feel uh, pretty honored that, that Brett and the rest of the group would, would let me uh, take up the, the helm here and help lead the organization in whatever way I can. No, we're, we're super excited. Uh, we've commented multiple times that to have someone with your knowledge and the fact that you really already understand the inner workings and machinations of how the league operates, you know, that positions us only to be in one of the most successful places we could possibly be as a brand new club. So I, I'm I'm almost curious, was there any other suitor out there that would have been, if Rhode Island FC wasn't on the table, was there another club that you were eyeing? Like who's someone that maybe organizationally just does it really well? You mentioned Louisville. Is is that the is that the pinnacle or premier club within the USL that we would want to emulate? 
I mean, look, I, I think you can, uh, I'll use my coaching days as an example. Everyone uh, always used to, to joke that the, the best coaches are often the, the best Steve. So you try to, to take a little bit away from, from everyone uh, of what they, what you think specifically they, they do well. And, uh, and, and nobody's perfect at, at the end of the day. And, and yeah, I was approached with a variety of opportunities at this level, at, at the MLS level that were, uh, that were interesting. But I think this, the opportunity that existed here to be part of an expansion franchise and really uh, help put my stamp on a, on an organization along with the great leadership that, that we have here both at the executive level and and at our ownership level and it really kind of was the the full package you know you, you, I've seen a lot of the teams over the course of time that maybe have one or two or three of those elements but but not everything holistically or they kind of grow their their way into it you know, using Louisville as an, as an example there's certainly one of the premier clubs that that we have within the, the ecosystem, but it, it took them a fair bit of time to, to get there. They had to play at Slugger Field on a baseball diamond for uh, that they converted for a, a period of time before uh, the interest and investment and going to three straight uh, league championship matches doesn't doesn't hurt for um, for increasing that that interest. But you know they're a great example of a group that's kind of grown into it over the course of time, and they grew as the as the league grew. You know again, I think we're. Uh, we're fortunate to be arriving uh, in the league at a at a point in 2024 where, you know, there's uh, there's been a lot of of trial and error over the course of, of time. I was certainly part of that from a league perspective. I, I think that the uh, that the league's in again a really good place, and and you know I, I think there's lots of things that I would try to emulate from from other clubs, but it it's also market specific. That you know I, it was one of the things I found working league side when we'd have prospective franchisees come in and they'd say, you know, who, who does it best? Who should we, who should we do it like? And it's like, well, again, everyone has things that, that they do well, but no two communities are the same. No two marketplaces are the same. What resonates with a fan here in Rhode Island is not what would necessarily resonate with a fan in Louisville, Kentucky, or Miami, Florida, or Charleston, South Carolina, that just the marketplaces are so different and the communities are, are so different that, yes, community engagement is a key component of that but what resonates here will not necessarily resonate there so uh yeah i think people are are looking for this silver bullet that just simply doesn't doesn't exist and it's always a bit of a trial and error and seeing what the the marketplace responds to but but that's the fun of it if it was uh, if it was easy everyone would do it right <laughs> agreed speaking of the community um i find it very fascinating that this club's um, priority is a distinction of being Rhode Island FC, right? When you look at the New England area and the New, Eng the New England sports community, a lot of the times they use the New England moniker, but they're really referencing the clubs that are located more centrally in Massachusetts or Boston, and then that's a conduit for these other states to kind of gravitate towards. This seems like one of the first projects where there's that distinction. I know there's another USL club um, in the space, but what would you say to the community at large when we're making this a Rhode Island FC project? Obviously, you're not trying to excommunicate anyone else in the greater area, but how do you distinguish that for, for the fans of the community? Sure. Look, we use the, uh, the phrase, a club for all Rhode Island, very frequently, and that can mean a lot of different things and does mean a lot of different things. But I think at its core, what we want is something that Rhode Islanders can, can be proud of. We take a lot of pride in being uh, you know, one of the, the only independently owned professional franchise that exists here. And you know, that's not to 
to slight anything of the good work that you know the Providence Bruins or the Paw Sox before us have have done. Now that and obviously they're they're still existing up in in Worcester. And it's not to say that minor league sports don't have their place, but I think when you have players that uh, are inherently transient and want to be elsewhere, it's difficult for that to resonate as holistically in the community as uh, as I think it can when it is an independently owned uh, entity in the in the way that we are in a club that's very, very focused on what makes Rhode Island unique. And that was one of the things that in this work predated me. So kudos to the, the group for doing it the, the right way. There were a lot of think tanks and discussion groups and, and focus groups around what this brand would look like. And I think the group did a really good job of, of listening to to those folks that really care about soccer in this state saying, please don't make it this, you know, this blanket moniker of, of New England. Like if this is something that's going to resonate here in the state, then it has to has to be named for, for the state. And Rhode Island is obviously very unique geographically, just in, in terms of the fact that it's still very, very alien to me that I can drive five minutes up the road and, and be in Massachusetts coming from Illinois Five minutes didn't get you outside of your county, let alone in in another state. So that that's very interesting to to me. But because of the how proximate everything everything is, and that's why we've done the thirty nine cities and towns tour that that we did when the brand launched, and and we were very proud to have season ticket deposit members from all thirty nine of those those cities and towns. Uh, it's one of those things that makes Rhode Island unique, and we should be leaning into the things that that make Rhode Island unique. And and it really is more than than just a name to us. It is about being something that, that's part of the fabric of the community and that resonates with with people. And And I think when professional sports are doing what uh, what they really should be doing at their, at their core, it can be a, a wonderful catalyst for change and improvement and unification within a community. And hopefully we can accomplish some of those things along the way. So speaking of unique, uh, one of the things I learned recently is that this project is going to be the largest private infusion of investment dollars uh, that the state has seen in a very long time. And, you know, I know, depending on who you ask, there's the people, there's the diehards on both sides that uh, that won't be pleased until we, we reach that that first game, um, whether it's in 2024 at Bryant or maybe even at Tidewater. But um, I don't think we've heard a lot from the club on the relationship with the city themselves. Obviously, it's good because uh, this wouldn't be happening without that. But what has been your take so far on the city's partnership? Where do you think that there are that we're doing things correctly, and where do we think that there still needs some um, some things that need to be finished before we end up playing in, at Tidewater? Yeah, look, the both the city and the state have been incredibly supportive of of the project, and and we certainly. Are incredibly appreciative of of that support and and like you said there's been people in in both camps on on the project and and I can uh, understand to a degree where some of that uh, where some of that reticence to kind of fully embrace it is has come from I know that there's uh, I've heard the Kurt Schilling story more more times than I I care to to admit but I, but I also get that that's where a lot of that resistance comes from is is the group feels like they've um, you know, they've kind of welcomed folks with open arms before and, and gotten burned. And, and it's incumbent upon us to make sure that, that we do the right things to, to demonstrate that, that we won't just talk the talk, we'll walk the walk as well. And that we are a community focused and based club. And we think this project can be truly transformative, uh, not just to Pawtucket as a city, but to, to the state. We, we often say here internally that we want to be the, the living room of Rhode Island where people come for 
for not just soccer, but entertainment. We obviously want it to be as much of a 365 day a year asset to the state and the community as it can possibly be in terms of bringing in concerts and festivals and outside sporting events uh, as well. So that's certainly a part of our of our plans. And you know, I think that's one of the, the reasons we've gotten the support from from leadership in the the city and state is is they see that bigger opportunity, that that bigger vision. So you know, I've I've got nothing but appreciation uh, for the support we've gotten from from that group. And and if there are people that that are still resisting or are still naysayers, uh, I would certainly welcome them out to Bryant in 2024 and and also uh, to the stadium at Tidewater Landing in in 2025. I I think we will. Uh, I know we will exceed expectations, so that that's a big part of our mission here is to is to again make sure that we're we're true to our word because there's a lot of people that are are doubting uh, whether this is something that that we can can validate and and we feel fully of the belief that we can and and we're willing to prove it. Fantastic. Um, so so back to your presidency uh, with the club. Um, I think it would help listeners if they could understand kind of what your actual roles and responsibilities are. There's a lot of terminology in the soccer world that can get thrown around from general manager, sporting director, president. So could you give the listeners a greater explanation and expansion of what your roles and responsibilities are? Sure, first and foremost, it's on the health of the, the club from a business and financial perspective and, and making sure also that we're, you know, we're an expansion franchise. So I, I run into people all the time who see the brand and like the brand, but don't necessarily know what it is. So so part of it is is preaching the gospel of Rhode Island FC, so to speak, as, as often as we can uh, in the community. And our, our grassroots and marketing team does a great job of, of being out there on a regular basis doing doing exactly that. But it's trying to engage, commu- you know, one of the most important parts I think about my role is engaging other community leaders and, and seeing where we can, again, be a benefit to to the community, whether it's uh, our platform with, on the, the partnership side that you know, maybe is something that, that's interesting to somebody from a corporate perspective, or if it's somebody that's long dreamed of, of getting to attend professional soccer matches, but maybe either the revs are too far away or the price point's a little, uh, a little too steep on, on a regular basis. You know, we want to be as accommodating as we can to as many different constituencies as, as we can and kind of keeping our core focus on on exactly that and what our missions and values are is certainly a big part of of the role. And I was very fortunate to get to build a team here from from the ground up. So we have a, a number of of great executives that help manage the business alongside of me here and, and make sure that we're getting all those various elements as as right as we as we can. Again, we we all find learnings along the the way and and we'll continue to strive to to do things bigger and better year over year and, and day over day. But that's that's the principal focus for, for me is making sure that uh, our long-term viability here exists as a, as a club, that we're getting the, the word out in the community and, and that we are true to uh, to that word that, again, uh, you'll hear me say it a lot, that the Club for All Rhode Island is more than just a, a tagline. That's a big part of our value system here uh, as a group. And it's making sure that that uh, you've gotten the opportunity to, to be in the office here today. So hopefully you've seen a little bit of the energy and enthusiasm and culture that, that we're trying to build here uh, as a group. They're, they're young, they're vibrant, they're hardworking. Uh, a lot of them are here from the, the local community and, and now have the opportunity to work in professional sports, which is a really, really unique 
uh, opportunity, whether they're they're in it for the the long haul or it's a it's a stop along their their journey. We want to make sure that we're developing good professionals that are good stewards out in the community. So that that's a big part of of my day to day is just trying to to manage the growth and development and and trying to to make sure that we keep the the ship on course and and you know there's there's other elements uh, to it as well uh, upward upward management with ownership and and the board and the group and obviously my background in in USL I think is helpful in in that respect we certainly have members uh, of ownership like Brett who uh, have been in the USL ecosystem just as long as as I have our time kind of coincided when when he arrived in in Phoenix and and when I kind of shifted to the the pro side in, in USL, but we've got a number of folks from the, the group that this is either their first foray into pro sports, or if it isn't, it's their first foray into to USL. So just making sure that everybody kind of has a, a firm grasp and understanding on, on the ecosystem is is really helpful. And, um, you know, Kano and his group are very well positioned from a, an expertise perspective on the, the sporting side. But if, if he's uh, willing to allow me to lend my uh, my knowledge of the the league, uh, particularly as one of the lead negotiators on the collective bargaining agreement league side, I probably understand more of the intricacies of of that than than most of the presidents would in in the ecosystem, and and have some uh, a little bit of insider baseball, so to speak, uh, from from my time on the the league in terms of what will make us competitive on and off the field. So to the degree that I can lend some assistance on that front. I'm, I'm happy to do it to, uh, to scratch the sporting itch from time to time. <laughs> so is it fair to say that you've given coach some autonomy or a long leash to make those player acquisition and scouting decisions as long as it makes sense with the financial budgets that we've set forward for the club? Yeah, 100%. I'm not going to tell Kano anything that he doesn't already know about about soccer. Uh, he's probably forgotten more than than I know it, at this point. So uh, his expertise are, are critical to our growth from a, a sporting perspective. Frankly, he was one of the he was the first name that, that I threw out to, to the group when I was hired and we were considering head coaching and, and GM candidates. Uh, I, one of the things that was critical for uh, for us as a group when we were evaluating who the right fit was, uh, was somebody that understood the USL ecosystem. That's one thing that I've watched a, a lot of expansion clubs make a mistake on is hiring somebody that is certainly an expert in the sport, but doesn't have a firm understanding on what this ecosystem entails. And, and we don't have an expansion draft. We don't have some of these things that, that you get the benefits of in, in other ecosystems to kind of jumpstart the engine so to speak, we are truly building everything from the ground up here. And he's had experience doing exactly that in Birmingham. And there have obviously been perennial playoff contenders a year in and year out. So he's he's experienced that success. He's seen what that that structure has looked like to, to get them there. And, uh, and and he's certainly the the right man for the job. So he's he's got my full support. If he if he ever wants uh, wants a sounding board, I'm, I'm here for him. But he's uh, like I said, he's more than capable of, of fulfilling all those duties in himself and then some. So um, it's interesting. I was actually just reading that uh, Birmingham is attributing some of their performance gap right now to the loss of Kano. So in a good way, that's great to hear that, you know, again, we've secured that top talent. Unfortunate for Birmingham, but this isn't a Birmingham podcast. Um, I, I have a curious question, and maybe you can or can't answer this, but I haven't really been able to understand the composition of um, team allowance when it comes to um, to, to roster guidelines. Uh, is that something that um, the club is positioned within, if you can share 
Uh, do we anticipate that we'll be competing financially at, at the competitive level? Do you guys intend in year one to splash additional cash? Like, I, I, we really don't understand those mechanisms. How, how do you perceive that that will work from a financial uh, strategy? Sure. So, and I'm, I'm happy to, to share. I literally wrote the roster rules for USL, so you're talking to the, the right person. But again, it's a very different ecosystem than <clears throat> I think most people would uh, would maybe understand in a domestic context because they're probably most familiar with, with MLS constructs. So we don't have TAM and GAM and all these other uh, intricacies around transfer allocations and, and general allocation money and some of those things that people can chop and change and trade around for players or for other monetary assets. So all those constructs don't don't exist. We are a much more traditional soccer model. I think the you know, the international fans of the game would probably like our structure probably resonates much more with them than than it does say to in an MLS level because we we are independent whereas all MLS players are employees of the league because they're a single entity structure. All of our all of our players are employees of the club. So again, the structure there is very, very different, uh, which I think gives us a, a greater deal of autonomy in terms of roster construction, and frankly makes us a little more appealing to um, to some uh, people outside of the domestic landscape that are maybe interested in, in loaning some players in because they're not having to go through the league office and then through the club, they can come straight to, to the club. And again, Kano's got really great relationships with with folks domestically and abroad to, to help construct the the roster as, as he sees fit, but you know there's yes there's still some things that people would associate with MLS rules in terms of international roster spots and allocations and the ability to to trade those and um, or sell and buy more of those uh, if you if you want to on an annual basis. So there's a little bit of that within the the ecosystem, but you know, there's maximum roster limits of. 30 total players. Most of the teams average out more in the 24 to 26 range. Um, there's you know, academy contracts and academy players that you get an additional five slots for. They count towards your international limit, but um, but don't count towards your total roster max. So you get kind of five freebies, so to speak, for uh, for folks on academy contracts if that's something clubs opt to to pursue. Uh, so there, you know, it's not without its own intricacies for sure, um, and I could probably tell you way more about it than than you or the listeners would uh, would ever want to know. But it does provide us uh, quite a bit of flexibility and latitude to construct the roster. And and you know, Brett, uh, I'll, I'll use his turn of phrase when we were at the the brand launch back in November, where he quote unquote threw the gauntlet down uh, that that we were going to be competitive right out of the gate. So we're going to do the things that we need to do to to ensure that we are. And I've I've seen over my time in the USL ecosystem that, which is probably not a surprise to anybody, but that the on-field success generally dictates the other successes that the club has in the community and the marketplace and, and the attention that it, that it garners. So uh, not that, not that the, the sporting side of things isn't enough of a pressure cooker as, as it is, but it does have some tangential impact on the rest of the business for sure. Uh, any expansion on what we would call success uh, for a year one uh, project? Is it making playoffs? Is it winning hardware? What, what do we what do we define as that, or do we need to keep that up in the air for the time being? Oh, look, I I think would I love to be Sacramento where where we lift a trophy in year one? Of course I would, but it's a process, right? And and the the group understands that. Uh, I think success for for us means being competitive within the conference. Fighting for playoff bids, and and then once you're once you're in the playoffs, anything anything can happen. Anyone can beat anyone on on any given day. That's one of the things that I think 
makes the sport so fun for for so many people and and so engaging for for our fans. So, look, I, I think we we certainly have the the playoffs uh, in our sights and feel that that that's tangible. Obviously, the league gets more and more competitive year over year. For for those that have paid attention to the USL ecosystem this year, there's no there's not a lot of easy outs. There's there's no easy games, and and everybody is. Um, is fighting and clawing week in and and week out. I think at this point there's only two teams out of the out of the 24 that um, that are playing right now that are mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, and we only have a month left in the the season to go. So it's uh, it's something that um, it, it is a gauntlet for sure, um, and and it's it's a grind. It's tough. You know, 34 games over 32 weeks as it as it sits here. So it's essentially eight months of, of soccer before you ever even get into the playoff cycle, and you got preseason. Prior to that, where where you're trying to, to cut your teeth, get the roster to gel and form, and um, and you know we'll try to, to make sure that we're as successful as we can can be out of the gate, while understanding that uh, everybody's new, right? You're not coming into a pre-existing culture, just as we are from a front office perspective. Connor will be building a sporting culture in real time, and so that that takes some time, some gelling, and and usually with expansion teams touch wood they they've typically done done quite well because you've got people that are excited and engaged to to be there but uh it, it's a challenge because everyone's everyone's dealing with challenges as they arrive real time and um and i'm sure there'll be some some triage moments here and and there that we'll have to tackle as a as a collective uh, no doubt but you know over the over the course of a uh, of the long season that that's the benefit is uh it, it is a marathon and and not a sprint and so there's there's always time to to improve over the the course of it, make sure that, that you get things right at the right time of year. But it's uh, there's a reason that you don't see very many repeat champions in any sport, let alone uh, USL. So it, it's uh, it's a challenging it's a challenging test, but one that we think we're up for. Yeah, that parody is both exciting and terrifying at the same time. So agreed. Um, in terms of you know building the team and, and getting that that first squad gelled. What are some timelines listeners can expect? You know, we haven't heard about player announcements yet or when that window can be anticipated. And then also maybe what do we think is the right time to say that a majority of the squad has been locked in before that preseason? Or, or does it happen through the preseason as well? I mean, there'll, there'll certainly be some players that are on trials even going into to preseason. So, you know, the roster won't really be be crystallized in, until we we kick that first ball in the in the beginning of March. It'll continue to be an ongoing process, and even even through that, you see with a lot of teams they'll bring in players on loan. They'll sign new players throughout the the course of the season. So everyone's always looking to to improve. That's the the business that that we're in. Uh, you know, in terms of announcements, there are certain league guidelines and restrictions on when those can then those can be made. Uh, Kano's made progress on the the player front. We look forward to to making those announcements in the in the not so distant future. But due to certain league guidelines, we're restricted on when we can make those announcements relative to when those teams, if they're currently existing in the USL ecosystem, for example, if somebody's still in the midst of the playoffs, they don't want those players being being announced and distracted, even if they have signed with the club going into to the following cycle. So I can't say that I entirely agree with, with those standards, but the standards are the standards. So it, it is what it is. We'll need to, to respect those, but I tell everyone to keep a, a weathered eye on the horizon because there's some exciting things coming. That's great. So outside of team building, there's a lot of things that still need to be accomplished uh, getting into the 2024 season. How would you prioritize and what would you say are some of those you know big ticket lifts that you still need to see get done before we have that first match? 
Sure. Uh, well, you, you said part of it, which is the ticketing side, right? So we, we've gone through the, the initial conversion process with those that had deposits. So the group's working hard out there as we speak to continue to, to bolster uh, the season ticket numbers for the, the bunch. We've been very excited about the, the response to, to this point and, uh, and continue to be appreciative of all the support we've gotten from, from the marketplace and, and continue to get. So uh, the group will continue the, the sales push there because we, we want it to be as rockets of an environment as it can, as it can possibly be uh, at Bryant this upcoming year, Tidewater in the, the future, et cetera. So that, that's going to be a big part of, of making sure that, that the front office side is supporting Kano and the group on the, the sporting side is making sure that there's, uh, there's a rowdy bunch of Rhode Islanders that are there to support the side. So we, we look forward to, to those days coming on, on uh, crisp Saturday nights in, uh, in the spring, moving into those beautiful nights in the summer um, and fall. So we're excited about that process. We'll, we'll get ready. Uh, probably by the time this is released, we'll have announced uh, one of our first anchor partners from a, a corporate partnership perspective. So we've, we've been very pleased with, with the interactions we've had in the, the corporate community here. And, and again, partnership for, for us is more um, than just the dollars and cents component. Uh, sure, it's good to have the financial support of people that are interested in being involved in the club, but we want that to really be two-way traffic. We want the experience to be additive to them just in the way that we feel it, it is to, to us and that you know, we're engaging them more than just a, a field board in the stadium, right? That they, they we're truly involved with their business in whatever facet they would, would like for, uh, for us to be. So that, that's part of the process as well as making sure we've got a good, uh, good corporate base and, and support there. And, uh, and the, there's definitely been a local focus on, on that side uh, as well. Again, anyone can, um, can write checks, but it's about making sure that, um, that people are really tied into the core mission and values of the club and, and vice versa that, um, that their missions and value make, make sense with what we're looking to, to accomplish. And again, we're additive to each other's experience in, in the space. And, and then just continuing to get the word out about, about who the, the club is. The, I mentioned them earlier, but the grassroots team is, is pounding the pavement on a, a regular basis, trying to get out to as many local events as, as they can. Uh, they probably didn't think they need their rain gear as often uh, <laughs> as, uh, as they have this summer. But, um, but Either way, they're uh, they're ever stalwart and, and out there on a regular basis. So that's been a, a fun part of the process. Is is again preaching the the gospel of of RAFC, and uh, we've also got some exciting things coming in in early fall around uh, the club's first ever kit release, which obviously we'll be very very excited about. Uh, we got some uh, we'll be releasing a mascot here in the the fall as well. So there, there's a lot of fun things to to look forward to that. That engage the community in in a different way, um, and, and again, we want to make sure that our our relationships here uh, are more than just transactional. That that's the part I think most people expect from professional sports, but we try to be about much more than than that here, and and keep that community engagement as strong as we as we possibly can. And again, the grassroots team does an excellent job of you know not just finding things that where we can where we can sell merchandise, but you know like the the initiatives with. Uh, the awareness project last week and our partners at Capelli Sport where we're providing backpacks in the community for, for kids that needed it. That's, that's what it's about. That's the, the way that we're trying to affect change in, in the community. And, and again, we're lucky to have partners that share that, that vision in the space and, and will support us and support the state in that kind of way. 
It sounds almost like we need to see a Rhode Island FC poncho in the merch shop as, as soon as possible. Um, so, so to focus back into the Bryant aspect, obviously that's not ideal. But I, I was curious, how did you decide or determine that Bryant was going to be the facility of choice as we had to look for a temporary home? Sure. We addressed it a little bit on the, the initial press release, but a lot of it, frankly, has to do with league and federation standards. And, and we have to make sure that we're meeting those to, to be compliant with, with the needs of a professional franchise at the, at the Division II level <clears throat> per U.S. soccer. So that drove a lot of it, which is making sure we have a minimum of 5,000 fixed seats. And, and we're obviously going to have to augment Bryant to, to get it up to that level uh, in the first place. And it was really a lot about the footprint that, that existed. Um, you know, we, we left no stone unturned in terms of uh, the prospective opportunities to play at a, a variety of different places. And, and people were certainly public about their recruitment of us at, at times. And we, it's good to be wanted, right? So uh, we, we appreciated the enthusiasm to, to potentially host us. But between timing of what we need to do to upgrade facilities and the number of seats and, and some of those things just associated with the league and pro league standards, Bryant became increasingly clear that it was it was going to be the option, and and obviously them having some experience hosting the Patriots in the, the early two thousands is their training camp, you know, hosting professional franchises and and what their needs are, are going to be from a player care perspective, uh, a fan perspective as people are coming into the the building, just even from uh, logistics and ingress and egress and parking and, and things of those of that nature it's important to, to have a partner that can be supportive and, and kind of understanding of what that process looks like. And, and we're, we're thrilled to, to be a Bryant for 2024 and they've been really good partners to, to this point. So we look forward to continuing that, that partnership and, and really putting on a, a first class match day experience come 2024. That's fantastic. We actually had uh, several listener questions that wanted to be directed towards the Bernie experience. So if you could rapid fire, one, do we think that the club will be able to expand seats depending on the final ticket sales that we see or if there's an additional attendance lever that needs to be engaged? Is it expandable beyond the, the design of what you are currently augmenting? Yeah, so our augmentation will get it to a little over 5,000 it, it burns, so about 5,010, 5,020, give or, or take. We are in active conversations with them about Look, if, if the ticket sales continue to, to go as well as, as they have early on and we anticipate them to, to continue to do, is there an opportunity to, to stretch it a little further? Candidly, it'll be relatively finite. I mean, the footprint is getting expanded to, to the point uh, that, that we and they feel comfortable doing it um, just because we're obviously putting an entire bleacher now on the north side of, of the facility. We're bringing bleachers into the south side of, of the facility in addition to what already exists in the grandstand in the east and, and west side. So we're, we're about as maxed out as, as we can be. And, and trust me, with our, our early deposit numbers and being bullish on, on the support that we're going to get from the local community, we were pushing as hard as we could right out of the gate to try to stretch that as, as much as we can. So, but we are in active dialogue about, you know, could we add a few more field seats if we need to? Could we add to areas in the north or west or wherever it is in the, the side of the building? So we'll, we'll push as, as much as we can within, uh, within reason. But we also, we also want to be good partners to, to them as well and make sure that it, it's manageable for all parties. Definitely. Uh, in terms of the parking lot, uh, tailgating. I didn't see that expressed in the information. Is that something that will be continued to allow for Rhode Island FC fans? Yeah, it's something we've certainly talked about um, with the folks over at Bryan. Obviously, that's an experience that they offer 
at their football games currently. And, and so something that uh, has been expressed, particularly from our supporters group, that, that they would like to, to continue and, and others, I'm sure, as well. So that is something we're working to, to accomplish with the folks over at, at Bryant. We, uh, we understand that, that uh, the pregame can be just as important as, uh, as the end and postgame. So to the degree that we can offer a, a top-level fan experience, we, we want to do it. Awesome. Uh, and then also uh, transportation. So for those that, since it's not going to be in Pawtucket for the first season, is there a dedicated transportation plan to help bring fans out that maybe don't have cars and can't, you know, as quickly just get to the stadium? Sure. So we are incredibly lucky here to have Paul Byrne as a, as a resource, as our stadium GM, which obviously translates not just from the stadium at Tidewater Landing, but what we're doing out at, at Bryant. Uh, Paul is has lived through uh, a very similar experience and worked through a very similar experience in Houston when they played at the University of Houston before uh, they moved into what was at the time BBVA Compass uh, Field in in Houston at their MLS stadium. So he's lived and worked in in this type of dynamic before, where where you're you know guest in somebody else's home, so to speak. And and while we would certainly anticipate that the vast majority of fans are are driving up there, Paul's in constant dialogue about rideshare opportunities and uh, there's actually a rip to stop that uh, stops on Bryant's campus so is that something that we can utilize as a as a resource so to the degree that that we can uh, ease some of the the traffic and offer some some opportunities as, as alternatives it's it's something that we're still working on in in real time but something that we we certainly are working on and, and aware of that because uh, it's been a consistent question we've we've gotten here uh, and the ticketing staff's been been getting as well about the the experiences is what other opportunities to get to and from the stadium exist. So to the degree that we, we can't offer them, we'll, we'll do our utmost. Okay. And then last question, um, football line. So it's a football stadium. Uh, is there going to be an opportunity to paint over or hide those for game day? Or is that something that we'll have to deal with in the, in the first season? So they're actually uh, working on uh, a plan alongside of us to, to try to make it look as much like a soccer pitch as it, as it possibly can. Again, they're, they're home, um, and so I'll, I'll respect um, the fact that, that uh, they've got to operate out of it too, and they operate multiple sports out of, out of that facility. Um, but as, as we worked on them with the plan, trying to make it look as much like a soccer pitch as we possibly can has certainly uh, been part of, uh, of the conversation and uh, is, again, coming from the league side of, of things. It is part of, of league standards to try to get that uh, as close to, uh, to soccer exclusive as possible. So again, we'll, we'll do everything that, that we can within reason to, uh, to accomplish that. But it, it's certainly something that we want. Uh, we want to play aesthetically pleasing football, uh, and, and that includes the, the surface that we're on. Fantastic. Uh, so moving from the short-term goals and, and the Bernie opportunities, uh, what has changed with the long-term deliverables outside of the stadium delay itself? Or are those the same that they were when, when the club was announced? Is there anything that you can share with listeners on kind of what that priority exercise is for you thinking beyond 2024? Yeah, of course we have the, the immediacy of 2024 on our, our minds all the time. But to your point, uh, you know, you, you don't plan, you don't, uh, plan to fail. You fail to, to plan if, if that's the route you, you go. So we need to make sure we're being thoughtful and, and mindful of what 2025 and beyond looks like in that plan and strategy and um, and the planning around that's never stopped. Um, obviously, we needed to make a little bit of a pivot here in 2024 uh, to make sure that we were able to, to put a product on the field, which is very important to us as a, 
as a group, we, we said we wanted to play in, in 2024. And so that was something that was very important to us. And I think you'll find that we're a, a solutions oriented bunch here. And, and so we found that solution in Bryant University. And again, are very appreciative of them um, letting us utilize their facilities for the 24 season. But 25 and beyond is, you know, I actually view it as, as something that's net positive. There's not a lot of, and I've seen it happen in the USL ecosystem with Louisville's transition from, from Slugger to Lynn Family Stadium, with uh, Colorado Springs transition from the former Widener Field to the current Widener Field. That can really give a club uh, you know, kind of a second bite at the apple, so to speak, in terms of re-engaging the fan base in a new and different way. And and Brian affords us an opportunity to kind of continue to build that that fan base and support uh, in year one and and continue to grow our way into Tidewater in, in 25 and, and beyond. And we're obviously immensely excited about what that opportunity looks like. And But you know, it doesn't mean that we're losing focus at all on, on 2024. We need to make sure that we we get this right uh, right out of the gate in 2024 so that the opportunity in 25 and beyond is as spectacular as we all think it's going to be. Agreed. Um, it was interesting to listen recently in some of the news on the stadium development with the Pawtucket City Council meeting. And it sounds like for all intent and purpose, everything is marshalling towards a 2024 timeline. Uh, I know that it wasn't outright committed that it'd be by the end of 2024. But is there anything that you think needs to be tied up with the stadium uh, development at this point? Or can we move on from that topic and focus on soccer as an organization? Sure, I'm happy to focus on on soccer as, a, as an organization. No, look, the group has, has done everything that, they, that they've needed to, to do to kind of continue on that pathway so that, you know, come 2025, that that season is, is ready to go at the stadium at, at Tidewater Landing. Again, very excited about what that looks like, but it, it doesn't mean we're not uh, equally as excited to to get the ball rolling in in 2024. So it, it's uh, you know it's a, a little bit of an exercise in uh, kind of you know, serving a, a couple of different. Uh, you want you don't want to take your your eye off the ball as as they say. So you're trying not to divide attention and focus too much. There's certainly a lot of planning uh, that goes into launching an entire building, particularly one with the the scale and, and amenities the stadium at Tidewater Landing will. We'll have again. We're incredibly fortunate to have somebody as experienced as, as Paul in that space, who's done exactly that previously, um, and so we're fortunate in in that respect. Um, but you know, Bryant is is definitely a key focus for us right now. Like we we've got to make sure that 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 stadium experience is is right because you only get one one shot at a first impression, as they say, and it's important that we get that first impression right because that is ultimately what's going to translate into the the experience. Uh, over at, at Tidewater, you know, fans make a stadium, not not the other way around. I love that line. Um, switching gears to kind of what we can expect from that soccer product. I know that, you know, the the decisions for player acquisition are in coach's hand. But one of the questions that we're seeing a lot from listeners is an understanding of what the academy or youth systems may look like. Uh, Mike Parkhurst was on a podcast a couple months ago explaining his journey through youth soccer, specifically in Rhode Island. And I was curious if you could kind of shed some light on what the anticipation is of Rhode Island FC's involvement in youth academies. Will we have our own dependent one or will it be kind of a partnership with all of the organizations within the state? Uh, and then also too, I've heard that there are territory rights with, uh, with how we can scout and bring in that kind of talent. So if you could maybe expand on all of those, those kinds of attributes of what a youth program needs to be to be successful. Sure. 
I'll maybe work backwards. So the in the USL ecosystem, very different from MLS. So there's not these identification territories and these ID lists and all these different trackers where, you know, this is our player because he's in our territory, hands off, uh, so to speak. That doesn't exist in the USL ecosystem. So we have franchise territories, but that's relative to marketing opportunities. So, you know, we, we can't go put, uh, you know, season ticket billboards in Hartford Athletics backyard. Uh, like that's what those constructs exist um, for in terms of, of the actual franchise rights for for the clubs and the, the territories. They're not applicable to uh, to the youth development space. Yeah. Being part of the launching of USL Academy, that was something that I was very adamant about, that um, they, the construct is if you're old enough, you're good enough in terms of the USL Academy model being that kind of 15 through 19 as opposed to the very traditional you know, U15, U16, U17, U18, all the all the way up. Uh, so, But another piece of that was, look, if, if we are doing something better um, than a player in San Antonio's territory and they feel like it's in their best interest to come here because we're the best opportunity for them to, to reach their their dreams uh, or vice versa, then then that's ultimately up to, to that player's decision that that's the right place for their development. I, I personally don't think that uh, the franchises or leagues should be dictating to, to players where their best opportunity and pathway for development is. More often than not, is that closer to home for the vast majority of players? Sure, that it makes sense from a psychosocial perspective, certainly, particularly as players are getting into the pro ecosystem younger and younger. Uh, you know, it's unheard of most of the time when, uh, other than in the European models, uh, when say Michael and, and I and others were kind of coming up through the system that you'd see 16, 17 year old pros, but Sacramento just signed a 13 year old to a right. professional contract uh, a couple weeks ago. So it, the landscape is definitely changing and, and altering. And, and part of that is, is making sure that teams are, are able to kind of keep players in their own ecosystem without, um, without other clubs being able to kind of swoop in and, and sign them on, on pro deals after they've kind of invested in them in, in the academy sense um, in terms of, of time, resources, energy, uh, coaching, et cetera. Um, so that, that's something that I, I think makes us very unique is, you know, look, it's, uh, it's an ultimate exercise in sporting Darwinism. If, if we're the most appealing opportunity to, to players in the youth space, would would love to to have them in the future that that being said there's still uh i think a lot of of thought and time and energy that needs to go into what that opportunity looks like for us as a club specifically i know it's something that that's certainly on on kano's radar he has an entire roster to to build uh, at the moment so it, it's certainly a secondary consideration relative to uh to just getting a, a squad on the field in in 2024, but it's not to say that it's not part of our plans in some form or fashion. USL actually requires its franchises within a certain amount of, of time in playing in the ecosystem that they have to have some involvement in USL Academy, but that can take a variety of different forms. It can be something like a Louisville or San Antonio where it's a fully fledged academy that's creating that direct pipeline into the first team. It can be a little bit of a hybrid where you have relationships with where clubs are operating on a full USL Academy calendar, uh, which runs um, in tandem with the, the pro calendar. But a lot of those players are coming from local clubs and go into the USL Academy system, but then go back to their parent clubs. Uh, it's kind of a club and country model, let's call it, as you, you know, kind of see players that 
play for Liverpool, Manchester United, wherever it might be. They get called in for international duty, but then come back and return uh, to their club. So there's that type of, of construct you can create. And then USL uh, at the academy level also offers an Academy Cup, which is an event, a strictly events-based system, which is a good toe in the water, so to speak, for uh, for a lot of clubs that are uh, still trying to navigate their way through what that process looks like uh, for them individually, where it's also very club and country, where they're just coming in for an event um, and kind of getting uh, used to pro staff, pro styles, uh, and the, the opportunity that could exist for them in the future, but then go go back to, to their club space. Uh, you know, I think our, our principal consideration when we're thinking about the academy is just making sure that that we're not being dismissive of the great work that's been done in the youth landscape here for so many years uh, with Bayside, Rhode Island Surf, Barrington, the list goes on and on um, of, of clubs that are doing things very well and have produced players over the, the course of time. Of course, I would love for that next step in their maturation process to be uh, some involvement with RFC instead of kind of you know, leaving the state and the area, whether it's as close as it is with the, the Rebs or maybe going even further to, to other places, we think we'll provide a, a very good opportunity. I think you've seen over the course of the last two or three years with Louisville, Orange County, like this is a space that USL clubs are starting to get very focused on. And uh, it's becoming more and more of a prerequisite for, for success that you need to create that kind of pipeline coming behind it. But the, you know, the exact structure behind it can can be very subjective and it and needs to uh, again as i was describing earlier some things that work in this community may not work in in others it's important to be very very mindful of of not stepping on the toes of the folks that have been doing good work here for for a long time as i said with uh with other situations it's very important for us to to be additive to the experience here for for people and and not be something that's um, that's a detractor or um, can be viewed in in a negative context. We we want to make sure that we we're being good partners in in the youth space, just like we are in others. Speaking of stepping on toes, you mentioned the USL requirements, but you know there is the MLS component to that. Is that something where you have to play nice around what they have already established from the Rebs' perspective, or is that completely not on one of your concerns, or, or it needs to be on the radar because? you have a different set of goals with the Youth Academy. Yeah, I think we, we have a different model, different set of goals. So, you know, we don't necessarily, we're not uh, held to any standards relative to MLS rules because we're not a, an MLS franchise. That being said, it's important to maintain relationships in, in the ecosystem. And uh, obviously, Kano has connections with uh, with the revolution and good relationships there. And, um, you know, whether it's them or other MLS clubs, uh, if there's an opportunity to bring in players on loan that we feel like are, are going to help bolster and, and improve the squad. It's important to maintain those relationships and relationships are difficult to maintain if you're being perceived to, to be a fox in the hen house, so to speak, and, and swiping players away all the time. So uh, I want to make sure that players are aware of the opportunity that exists here. And again, if they decide that that, that opportunity gets them closer to whatever their objectives might be, whether it's the collegiate game, the professional game, a move to Europe in in the future or, or other uh, or other spots internationally. Hopefully, we uh, were perceived as providing that that opportunity for them, and, and that that's a, a choice and selection that that they're making because they feel that that we're the right fit, uh, not because we're um, you know we're we're doing anything underhanded or, or playing dirty pool, as they'd say. 
No, that make that makes a lot of sense. I uh, I always find it really interesting when families have to make those decisions on on where to invest their money because you know supporting youth talent is always a gamble for them, not knowing what that that final build out would be. So it's great to hear that there's investment for what the club's interested in doing, and it'll be really really interesting to see how that pans out. Uh, on top of youth talent, though, we also have the most recent announcement of open tryouts. Um, in terms of your history with seeing open tryouts uh, at, at the USL level, what do you anticipate as a club in terms of pickup, in terms of acquisition? Uh, is there a percentage that we would say is the right number to bring on for that, that opportunity? How do open tryouts fit into the team dynamic? Yeah, look, it, it's an exercise in making sure we leave no stone unturned. <clears throat> and obviously, we're in a very fortunate situation just geographically with the hotbed of talent that exists in and around the, the Northeast that we hope we attract plenty of talent to, uh, from folks in, in open tryouts. And look, I, I've seen USL clubs over the course of time pick up players from open tryouts that end up making the roster at, at the end. Um, and particularly if they, they happen to be local talent that's gone unnoticed for, for whatever reason, Obviously, that's a, a great story. We would, um, you know, if it all if it all works out and all things being equal, we'd love to, to have some local products on the team. I think that's a, a great message and, and sign of of intent. Um, but it, it's really an exercise in making sure that Kano and his group uh, are making sure that in their scouting process and identification process that you know, they're they're not missing somebody just because the opportunity hasn't been afforded to them. So we we want to make sure that that we have uh, an open tryout that, that exists. Um, and that, again, like it'll be trialists probably coming on board all the way through preseason just to, to make sure that, again, it's a, an exercise and making sure that all options are, are available to us. And, uh, and because we're you know, very different than most squads who are maybe looking at two, three, four players worth of turnover that they have to, to fill and, and slot in, we're, we're going uh, up into the, the mid the mid twenties in terms of what we need to, to bring on board. So that, that requires a, a lot of time and energy and, and effort. And because of that, you know, the, the sporting staff can only be so focused on so many individuals that are, um, that are currently playing within the ecosystem or in, in MLS and in an exercise to cast that, that wide net. We think it's an important part of that process. Agreed. Agreed. It'll be really interesting to hear and see what signings come in, in the, in the hopeful near future. Um, so on, on top of the talent acquisition, kind of just maybe to close out this part of the conversation, what, what technical signings do you still need to, to complete to make sure that from an administration side, from a business side, Rhode Island FC is, is prepared for 2024? Are there any additional staff that you're looking to bring on board? Uh, who, who, what kind of roles would that might still be? Sure. I mean, we, touch wood, we're almost at our final resting place going into to the 2024 cycle. Uh, it'll be an ongoing process, obviously, with the, the development of the stadium over at, at Tidewater Landing and the capacity of that building being almost twice what it what it is at, at Bryant University. Inherently, that, that means that it'll require more time, more effort, more bandwidth from, from everybody. So that'll be kind of part of the 2024 cycle. And, and frankly, one of the the challenges is making sure that, again, we don't take our eye off the ball of what's going on in, in 2024, but also making sure that we're adequately adequately prepared as an organization to, to tackle uh, 2025 and, and really deliver on, on the expectations that, that we're trying to set here. But we're, uh, we're in a pretty good position from a, a front office 
perspective here, you know, relative to the, the USL ecosystem, we're a, a pretty robust group and very proud of the group that, that we have here. They, they do really good work day in and, and day out, uh, not just here, but out in the, in the community and are hyper-focused on making sure that this is the best possible product and we're de- delivering on the product, the promise of, of being that club for, for all Rhode Island and, and making the state very proud um, of what we're doing on and, and off the field. So there's still a, a couple of roles uh, here and there, probably on the, the marketing and communication side that, that we'd have our, our eye on and, and rounding out, uh, particularly with the, you know, the kit launch coming in the, in the future, making sure that we've got somebody to kind of manage the, the product line in the, in the future as it kind of evolves over the, the course of time. Like those are all um, you know, maturation uh, of the business type uh, type elements that we want to make sure that we're on the front foot on. We, we certainly never want to make sure we want to make sure we're not ever being reactionary if we if we don't have to be. Again, there's always moments and, and challenges that pop up that maybe you didn't anticipate that you've got to tackle in in real time. But I think from a, a front office perspective, we've we've been put in a, a good position to make sure that we can we can execute on the vision here. So speaking of 2024 and kind of you've teased a couple times with the kit. Uh, reveal. What can fans uh, expect to experience with that kit reveal? Is that something that we're going to open up to season ticket members? Is it just going to be a, a, a social package? Like, wh- what do you guys anticipate will be the the expression of releasing the kit for the community? Sure. So uh, it will definitely be event based. What that event uh, entails is still kind of under under development, and we've we've got a few uh, a few months here to to try to finalize those details. And and trust me, we will. We'll make sure that we are shouting that from the mountaintop so that um, that, that folks can attend who are or want uh, want to and are able to uh, through that that planning phase. Uh, we do want to want to make sure that it's something that's available to uh, as many people as possible. Also, making it uh, a unique and intimate experience as well for for people um, to experience. It's you know the launch of the first ever kit is. Uh, literally a, a once in a lifetime kind of kind of opportunity here, so we want to make sure that we're uh, that we're getting that one right, um, and it's it's going to be a, a big moment in the the club's history and something that's that's really exciting, and um, and we'll we'll create as much fanfare around it as we as we possibly can, but we definitely want it to be something that people can can see live and and in person. You know, it, it's one thing to to see a kid on digital social or um, or in video or pictures or what have you. It's another thing to to get to touch and feel it and and interact with it in a, in a real way. So that, that's something that we're very much looking forward to. That's fantastic. I, I, we did some research in an earlier episode about Capelli Sport, and uh, we'll be really curious to see what, the, uh, what those final designs look like because uh, it seems like you have a lot of, of ability to influence what goes on to the kit, whereas maybe with some other partners, it's here's your template, here's your brand colors, choose what you want to do. So we're super excited. We can't wait to see it. Yeah, look, Capelli's been a fantastic partner. Can't speak well enough of them in the process, and you're you're spot on. As we were looking at who that partner was going to be for us in in the on-field apparel space, one of the elements that was really important to us, and and again tapping into my USL experience that I've seen clubs have a ton of success with over the course of time, is making it something that that resonates with with the community. It's not you know cookie cutter stock kits that happen to have our colors on it and that's the only differentiator between us and and 10 other clubs making sure that this is something that that resonates with the the fan base and is reflective of of what we're trying to do with and accomplish with the brand was really important and and that's 
that's Capelli's bread and butter. So we, we feel very fortunate to, to have them on board and they've been a, a fantastic partner for us in the early days on a variety of fronts. It's great to hear. In terms of other uh, community experiences, I know in the season ticket deposit package, we, there were a couple of other things that were listed. Some of those are probably definitely going to come online with the launch of the of the sport itself. But are there other things that the club has planned to deliver ahead of uh, game one for season ticket members and fans? Yeah, look, uh, there'll be elements around the, the stadium as it continues to, to progress where we, we want people to be able to, to look, feel, touch, experience, and really be part of that, that process and, and help them feel amount of involvement and, and ownership uh, in what that, that process and experience looks like. And we've tried to, you know, whether it's about food vendors or uh, what people want to see in the next merchandise line, or we try to engage the community as often as, as we can and making sure that, that we're not dictating to fans and supporters what they want. Uh, we've got an engaged fan base. Why not ask the questions? So, you know, that also kind of comes along with the, the process of when we're thinking about these events, one of the things the group here puts a lot of thought and time into is, you know, whether it's partnership announcements or uh, different milestones at, at the stadium or um, initial player announcements, whatever it whatever it might be, can we involve the, the fans? And can we do that in person, not just in, in digital social? That again, having the experiential element, I think, really helps uh, really helps people gravitate towards things and really makes them feel a. Uh, uh, a degree of buy-in that, that you just don't get from a distance. So to the degree that we can accomplish some of those things, it's, it's forefront of our mind anytime we're trying to make any kind of, of noteworthy uh, announcement or, or uh, trying to, to tick a box, so to speak, in, in all the different processes we have going on. Can we get the fans involved is, is thought number one. Speaking of that perfect segue, um, it's our assumption that because of the weather, uh, game one will probably not be at Bryant just because there seems to be a desire to see sports that are in the New England corridor usually play their first few games uh, in a more temperate climate. Um, obviously, I don't think that that can be confirmed at this time. It's just an assumption. But if we do assume that game one or two uh, are played away, what is the club planning to do around away support for that, uh, watch parties, is there an opportunity to coordinate fans to to show up to that first game? What is, what are you guys thinking about in terms of tackling that approach? Yeah, obviously a, a lot of it's up to the the league scheduling process. Uh, the thing that I'm most glad to be removed from from my league days, I used to do the schedules for all the pro leagues, and you want to talk about an exercise and and making no one completely happy. That that's the pinnacle of of uh, of that sentiment, but. Um, so we'll, we'll see when, when first home game ends up being. Um, but the short answer is yes, we're, we're going to, like you'd see a lot of USL clubs have various pub partners where you can do watch parties. And obviously we've done watch parties in the, in the community around Men's and Women's World Cup and have seen a lot of success from, from doing that. And again, it's, as often as we can be out with our fans and, and engaged with them, uh, the better. And, and uh, you'll probably find some rowdy front office members at that, uh, at that watch party too. Um, that I, that's great. In fact, we've we've had a chance to meet some of them at some of these other watch parties. So just knowing when it starts to matter for the club, uh, that'll be fantastic. I think I would be remiss if I didn't ask for plans around Hartford. Obviously, that is the closest club in terms of geography. 
Uh, there's an anticipation that a, a natural Darby will develop over time or maybe immediate. We, we don't really know. Uh, are you thinking differently on how you want to approach the Darby games next season in particular? I don't, I don't think we'd approach it terribly differently than, than you'd expect anybody with a local rival to, to do it. I, I certainly know that the folks from Defiance have already been poking at them a, a little bit uh, during the, the course of time this year, and I, I encourage that. The, a healthy rivalry is, is good for the sports, good for both clubs, um, and just the, the proximity uh, as well. Obviously a bit more isolated than some USL clubs geographically, so having to group that close that supporters can travel to um, and, and be involved in the actual game day process is, uh, is something that is a really unique opportunity. And I've, I've attended other, other derby matches here domestically or, or abroad, and it's just uh, an environment that you can't replicate no matter how important the other games are. Teams could be top of the standings, bottom of the standings, somewhere in the middle. Uh, nobody wants to, to win that match more than the two supporters from, from each side. Um, and so that's something we definitely look to, to replicate and, and that we want to make sure we're working with uh, our supporters group, their supporters group, leadership from, from that side to make sure that it, it comes together uh, well and that, um, that it's something that both sides are, are equally supportive of and, and engaged on. And, and uh, you know, it's something we've even talked about uh, opening up a, a forum on what do we call the the derby? I'm sure people have a variety of of opinions on on that front, but that that's the the exciting part of getting to to build some of these things from from the ground up and just the ever expanding footprint of of USL. And I'm sure there'll also be some some clubs that not just geographically but competitively that we develop that kind of derby atmosphere with over the the course of time. Like Tampa and Louisville are not geographically proximate to each other, but they seem to meet each other almost annually in conference semifinals or finals matchups. So you just kind of develop that that venom for one another over the, the course of time, depending on, on who ends up on the right side of three points. So it's uh, it's a, a fun thing to be a part of, and I'm sure some more of those will develop over the, the course of time, and we look forward to it. With your knowledge from the USL, who would you say for listeners to maybe get a taste of what that is in, in regular season, who are maybe two teams today that are something to watch and say, oh, okay, that's what I can anticipate on game day. What, what two clubs really just don't like each other when it comes to that that derby? It's a it's a good question. There's there's a lot of them, so it's tough to to pick just uh, just a couple. I, you know, I think the rivalry that's developed between Indy and Louisville's been a, a really fun one. Obviously, they've got great supporters groups with the Brickyard Battalion on the Indy side and the Coopers and uh, over in the the Louisville side, so having those that supporters support is certainly a component uh, of that because the the banter back and forth uh, on digital social translating into game day, pregame, during game, post game, uh, the chance, the smoke going off, etc. That's all all a fun part of the process. So that group is is fun to watch. Uh, down in the the Southwest, New Mexico and Phoenix have always had a, a good rivalry between each other. The groups in Texas uh, play the, the Copa Tejas, which is unique because there's three of them, not just two of them. So, uh, you know, they, they play for a, a bit of hardware amongst the, the three. And, and so those are always, always fun matches. Uh, but it's, it's hard to pick just, uh, just a couple because there's, there's so many good ones that have developed uh, over the, the course of time. And, and you even see some trickle over into to Open Cup. Like there's still no love loss between the folks at the Rowdies in Orlando City when they match up in in Open Cup, which dates back to 
the Rowdies NASL days and and Orlando City's USL days. So there's uh, there's some long standard traditions that that even cross league lines at this point. Speaking of Open Cup, um, is that something that is part of the goals for a successful first season, or is is the primary focus on on USL play for for season one? Sure. Look, we we want to uh, look. I you'll hear me say this a lot uh, internally, externally. I hate to lose more than I like to win. So, and and for those that uh, don't understand the the difference, I, I don't think they're actually as competitive as they might think they are. But so that's a, a short way of saying I want to win every match that that we participate in. That being said, it's a long season. It is a grind. You see this a lot of and people. I think will understand the international context of just squad rotation. You know, clubs do not roll out the same team in in the Premier League that they necessarily do in FA Cup or Carabao Cup or or other competitions that there's some squad rotation that inherently needs to happen to make sure that that everyone stays fit and the periodization's right over the the balance of what ends up being a, a very long and, and taxing season for the players so you certainly have to to pick your spots but um, you know the expectation uh, is that we're we're going out and we're trying to get three points no matter who's Who's setting foot on the on the field squad rotation or not? So it, it's certainly an area where we would like to to have success. Obviously, we have a very close uh, regional uh, rivalry that that will hopefully develop between us and and the Revs up the road. And just with the way U.S. Open Cup ends up shaking out from a scheduling perspective, more often than not, if if we're all uh, still in the competition at the point where everyone's entering. We'll play them either at home or away, um, and we look forward to, to developing that rivalry as well. But it's uh, it's an interesting and exciting competition. I, I was fortunate enough to be a member of the U.S. Open Cup committee for a number of years while I was at, at USL, and it, it's one of the competitions that I frankly think doesn't quite get its its due, and I would love to see continue to to develop over the, the course of time. It, it really is uh, such a unique opportunity to, to see clubs punch above their weight and USL clubs over the course of time, I think have demonstrated that that gap is starting to close in terms of, of competitive levels. Uh, this is now, I think the, I want to say the fifth or sixth consecutive year, obviously absent the couple of years that the competition took off for, for COVID that there's been at least one, if not two championship clubs that have, that have made at least the quarterfinals. And obviously had Sacramento make the, the final, the, the previous year and some league one clubs even, making deep runs into into quarterfinals or or even having a sniff of of the semis from time to time so i think that it's good for the the game for people to understand the different layers and ecosystems it's certainly a a good exercise for for us to to make sure that people kind of understand the the level and i think people get this kind of minor league sports context because baseball is the most familiar equivalent in terms of the the various levels and so people don't understand that that you know, this is a just as it is overseas, where you've got Premier League, Championship, League One, et cetera. These are all independent, proper professional clubs and and players, and and they're fighting for survival week in and and week out. And it's it's not something where you know they're of course everybody wants to to be playing at the at the top level, and and I hope we move players on to those levels in in the future. But it's one of those things where. This is people's livelihood. They're they're fighting for it week in and week out, just like like everybody else. There's you know there's not Big Brother waiting to, to call you up for a, a separate opportunity. You've got to you've got to demonstrate that you've earned it on your own accord. Agreed. Uh, you know it's interesting. Separate of the Open Cup, with Portland announcing their USL one team, 
technically, and I, I use it with the air quotes here, um, there is a there is a competitive team in all of New England now with uh, with Vermont Green and uh, what is it new the the Seacoast United group out of New Hampshire. Is there? I know those are USL two clubs, but is there any? appetite to maybe explore some sort of New England cup now that every state is represented? Yeah, I mean, look, whether it's something that ends up being in the balance of the actual season, whether it's something we can do preseason, postseason, whatever might make sense for, for the group, it, it would certainly be be a fun exercise. And, and I think helping people understand, again, what those levels and tiers look like. And uh, we're, again, fortunate that geographically we have all those different different opportunities. I know the USL has um, some ongoing expansion plans, even on the professional side uh, in the in the region. So I trust it will only continue to develop and bolster over the, the course of time. But I've I've no uh, I've no reservations about trying to crown ourselves the, the kings of New England to be a be a fun exercise. I love that. That's such a great that, that has to happen now. Um, speaking to the USL itself, obviously it's not great that the loyal are folding. Um, and what's I think really difficult about that is it's not that it's a unsuccessful business product or soccer product. It's just some of the 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 findings of not having a soccer specific stadium. Uh, then of course there's the MLS contingent coming in. Um, but when I look at that as a team that maybe wasn't on anyone's radar that would be at that risk. What is your overall opinion on the league itself? You know, you were you were in its inner workings, and now you're looking from the outside. Um, how do you feel about the league's overall health and the performance of what we can we can look forward to in the next year or, or five years even? Yeah, it's, it's great. Coming out of COVID, one of the things that <clears throat> that the league and I've been very public about this as well is that one of the missions over the course of the next five years was to get no fewer than half of the clubs at net neutral, if not profitable from a business perspective to continue that path of, of sustainability well on their way to, to doing that. So I feel very good about the, the health of the league in the short, medium and, and long term. And obviously there's some some other long term plans that have been discussed publicly that I'm, I'm guessing you'll ask me about uh, a little bit down the, the road here in terms of promotion relegation and some of the opportunities that that potentially exists there within the, the ecosystem. But, uh, you know, I've never felt more bullish on on what the, the opportunities are within the league. Wouldn't have come to the club side if, if I didn't. Uh, obviously, uh, looking at it from a, a strictly selfish point of, of view and, and personal point of view, but uh, I think that, yeah, it's certainly unfortunate what's happened out in, in San Diego. It, it's, it is a byproduct, to, to your point, of and one of the reasons that, again, we've been so bullish on on having our, our own facility and own venue and, and continue to march down that path, it's a, it's a critical component of club success, both on and, and off the field. It makes a huge difference from a scheduling perspective. If you're the one controlling the events that are coming in and out of the building, um, obviously it helps from a, a strictly financial perspective uh, in terms of controlling your own destiny on on that front. Um, but that that's uh, it's been a challenge and something that's uh, that's been preached from a, a league perspective that if if you can at least be the operator of your venue, if not the owner operator of your venue, that's the position that that they need to try to get as many of their clubs into as as possible because it, it does make a substantial difference to to club success and health over the course of the long term. Is the loyal an example of U.S. Soccer Federation's failure to keep divisional lines in, in a partnership more than 
letting them be whatever forces that they want to be as they look for opportunities and territories? I wouldn't necessarily describe it as, as a failing, and, and I don't know that that's necessarily uh, the core remit or, um, or responsibility of, of the Federation. I, it's also, I think, a byproduct of, for better or worse, living in a very capitalistic society in, in the way that, that we do. There is that Darwinism element that, that will happen from, from time to time. Uh, certainly gutted for the folks over at, at Loyal because they put a great product on the field. Um, I can remember being at their at their home opener back in March of, of 2020. It was a, a great affair and they only continued to, to grow that fan base over the, the course of time. So I'm of course incredibly saddened for, for them. They had a, a great executive staff and ownership and, and they were always uh, a pleasure to, to deal with when I was when I was a league side, but you know, it, it is one of those things where it, it's, I think, incumbent upon us, and that's the exercise we're going through now of making sure that you're as insulated as you can possibly be, and the, the venue's a big component uh, of that. And you know, I, I think it, it can become a little bit of a, of a double-edged sword if the Federation suddenly over-indexes the other direction and, and starts to create too many constraints and, and barriers for people to, to clear to get into the game, because I think that's part of the reason that you've seen the growth at the second and third division level here over the, the course of time is that, yeah, they have to have the pro league standards that are in place to, to make sure that you know, not every person that, that wants to claim their professional can claim their, their professional. And there's still plenty of, of that. But I, I do think that it at least creates some form of a barrier for entry. And I'm sure it'll continue to evolve over the, the course of time, but you know, it, it, uh, them getting too too involved comes with the price as well. So it's something that, you know, I, I wish I I wish I could make a magic wand and, and produce the answer. But I, I've lived and worked in the ecosystem uh, a long time, and I don't know that I have a, a better solution to it than than anybody else at the moment. In terms of the the league expansion itself, right? When the MLS next teams were a part of it, or the or the MLS two teams as they were were called at one point. You know that expanded the league's numbers to double overnight, and then you know they were they were brought or they were removed back from the league to create their own independent structure and, and component. Where do you see USL landing in terms of the right number of teams for the league ahead of the conversation about ProRail that that I know everyone wants to hear about? <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's an interesting question. There's there's always a, a fine line where it starts to it starts to get, you know, you don't want too much, you don't want too little. What what that right number is, I think it's challenging to to answer. To to be completely honest, you want enough that a national footprint doesn't put, you know, six clubs scattered all over over the place because then you've got travel challenges and and logistics challenges. Uh, you don't want it oversaturated to the point where. You know, if there were two other professional teams in in Rhode Island, would it make viable businesses for all three of them? Probably not. And and then you start to have that instability conversation again. So yeah, you know, I think we're in a relatively good spot, and I think the marketplace has uh, kind of demonstrated what that that appropriate level for most teams is, which is kind of in low twenties to low thirties. Obviously, that's a pretty broad range. Um, yeah, I try to keep my percentages a little closer than than a third, a third, a third. But um, you know, it's it's tough. It, it just depends on I think fan interest, growth of the sport, and obviously the sport's growing incredibly quickly. It's a great time to be be part of the game. With you know, we got to 
uh, to kind of backdraft a bit off the brand launch and then the following Sunday, the men's World Cup launched, having the women's World Cup um, this this summer and then moving in towards the the focus around 2026 um, coming here on on domestic soil and it's a big and decade also, for soccer it is it's a huge decade for soccer in in this country and the way that you know the 94 world cup being here really proved as a kind of an initial catalyst and a little bit of a of a spark that you know started some members that eventually grew into a fire uh, i mean i i think that will pour gasoline on the fire when everyone's here in in 2026 with the focus and an increase in and in investment and marketing around the the sport here and and obviously having some big names come uh here in in the recent time including Lionel messi has certainly drawn i'd say more casuals into into the sport i'm also fascinated by the number of people that probably know more international players than i do just because they play FIFA all day long or whatever version of EA Sports football they <laughs> they call it now I still can't still can't pin that one down um, so somebody can somebody can course correct me in editing later but um, no I, I think that's uh, it, it's been a, a great time to, to be part of the sport and look if if the marketplace demonstrates that it can handle more then more investment is good in in the sport it, it'll only help us as a as a soccer nation to, to grow in the in the international competition ranks and i think we've we've seen that there were uh, just in this this past world cup roster i would say 12 to 14 i think give or take players that had had some touch point in the usl ecosystem whether it was league two league one or championship um you know, obviously they didn't go straight out of those rosters and, and into the world cup roster but it was part of their development and maturation process i think you'll see more and more of that uh, particularly with players like uh, like Josh getting called into to senior uh, men's national team camp out of Louisville uh, and then making the, the move to Benfica. I think that'll be something that becomes uh, increasingly frequent, and that, that's a good thing for, for the game. Competition, generally speaking, uh, spurns development and, and progress. So uh, the, the more the better as long as the marketplace can handle it. Agreed. So I think it's only fair to wrap this interview with the final question, ProRel. Where do you stand on it, whether that's a league opinion or you've separated from that? What do you think is the viability and, and what would you like to see come as a as a uh, end result for Pro and Rel in USL? Sure. Uh, look, I our, our principal owner just got promoted from League One to the championship overseas and I was helping uh, run partial lead on the pro rel project and analysis league side so you're not going to find a less objective opinion uh, on pro rel probably than you'll find out of out of rhode island fc and and again to the point i just made i think competition spurns development and evolution and progress and and particularly from a sporting perspective if everyone's level is inherently determined based on sporting merit then that's going to drive investment in in the game itself and and the sport um, and not just strictly the the business side of things uh, not to say that people should be getting out over their skis and and removing the sustainability element that that we've um, grown more accustomed to and, and appreciative of here over the course of the last few years in the usl ecosystem so there's a balance to strike um, but i think that from a timing perspective and I get asked this question well before we started talking about uh, pro rel in the USL context, just in a broader U.S. soccer context at every collegiate classroom I've I've ever guest spoken at. It's like the first question that comes out of everyone is, should we have pro rel? And it's an interesting question. I think it's certainly attainable within the USL ecosystem. I still think there's some 
some league maturation that that needs to and should occur at say the league one level still a very early league you've got some great clubs there who and they've proven this again in open cup that they can punch above their uh their divisional weight so to speak um from a competitive perspective but moving up levels as you see overseas means some increased costs and um and needing to develop the squad and um and so and it doesn't come with you know the uh the most valuable uh, game and sports moniker that the the promotion from championships to the Premier League overseas does, at least right now, which I think the flip side of that coin is it it probably makes it a more palatable conversation for for people to have here uh, in the short term, because the inverse of that is you don't have the financial cliff to, to fall off of that you do if you drop from the Premier League to the championship overseas. So uh, you know, as the as the commercial and media engines of the of the league start to um, you know start to continue to to mature, I think it only makes it a more interesting topic of conversation. But I think it's a a good thing for the sport overall, and and I'd love to see a way for for us to to figure it out. There's all sorts of different ways that that you can walk down that path and and get there. But I'd like the expo- exploration at least to continue. Agree. I look forward to seeing what happens in the future. Brett, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate joining Raising Anchor. Look forward to our next conversation. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Look forward to being back. I knew doing the research on Brett that this was going to be an informative interview, but I don't think I was quite prepared for the amount of in-depth analysis and offerings uh, laid bare that Brett provided both in his personal life his USL time, and now with Rhode Island FC. And I hope that this was able to give listeners a sneak peek or, you know, behind the curtain look at really what it is that we're going into as we become fans of this organization. I cannot thank Brett enough for his time. Um, I cannot wait for the next opportunity to interview him, uh, the additional technical members of the staff. There are a uh, bunch of people that it takes to kind of make this whole project work and each one of them deserves their own story and it's the hope of this podcast that we get to share those stories in the uh, in the time ahead so i think just to kind of wrap things up just a quick housekeeping on events that are coming up for the club uh rhode island fc will be at movies in the park at rocky point on friday the 13th again the guess is that it'll be hocus pocus Maybe Casper, I don't know if you have a better Friday the 13th kid-friendly movie, let us know. Um, And then after that, we do have the final um, event of the season for the college tour, which is the partnership between Defiance 1636 and the club. They'll be meeting on Saturday, October 14th for Providence College versus Georgetown. Big shout out to Defiance 1636. Uh, They've been all over the place helping support RFC in tandem at major events. I had the privilege recently of uh, hanging out with them for the Oktoberfest at the German American Society of Rhode Island, uh, and it was an amazing experience. It was great to see people uh, who were passionate about the club's existence, who were curious about the club's existence, and others who hadn't heard but were excited nevertheless that they were you know, coming to play in 2024. Um, seeing fans for the first time and seeing how the club and how Defiance interacted with them, uh, just top-notch, and my salute to the men and women who were helping run those events. 
Uh, and then in other events that we do have, we do have Roger Williams uh, Parks Spooky Zoo, which will be on Saturday, October 28th. And then, of course, we have the open tryouts where I hope you'll get to join us in watching you know, the young men uh, who want to try to earn one of those spots within the club. Uh, they'll be trying out in East Providence on Saturday, November 11th. Still no confirmed date for the uh, kit reveal event. I do know that it will be in the month of November. For, so for those of you either trying to figure when to save money or, you know, when you think it may be so that you can plan accordingly, I do know that it will be a November event, but I don't have the date yet confirmed from the club. So anticipate that on a future update, probably separate from our normal recording schedule. Um, and then expect a bunch of other big announcements coming. Uh, we've all but confirmed several other key factors. So from the second week of October through the end of November, you're going to be hearing a lot of exciting news ranging from mascot announcement, anchor partnerships, the kit, and players. So lots of exciting things to come. But in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter at RIFC Podcast. You can find us at Threads if you're using that at RIFC Podcast. Uh, we're mostly on Instagram in terms of activity, and that's at Raising Anchor. And then, of course, you can always find us on our website where you can get us at www.raisinganchorpodcast.com. Big shout out to all the people who have been buying merchandise lately. Some of the names I do know, so shout out to Tim. Some of the names that I don't know, I just appreciate you at the same time. So thank you for your love and contribution of the podcast, and we look forward to seeing you in the next week's episode. Anchors up. Anchors up.